Donna. And I'm Carrie. And we are Paranormal Chicks. Episode 135. And it is day 19 of 31 Nights of Halloween. And if you're on Patreon, you get to hear another story that Donna's mom told her that turns out she didn't make up. Right? Weird. Oh, and you want to know some people who are on Patreon? I'll tell you. Ooh. Shannon O. from Canada. Aaron C. from Virginia. Nikki H. from Michigan. Brooke H. from Arizona. Shars C. from Australia. Amanda D. from California. Brittany R. from Washington. And Amanda A. from Illinois. Thank y'all so much for joining Patreon. They are getting a shit ton of content for 31 Nights of Halloween, plus the backlog of all the content since we've started Patreon. So if you want that stuff too, head on over patreon.com slash the APC podcast. Well, I have a new podcast that I'm listening to. You know, I love the one story kind of mm-hmm. podcast and it's called the Piketon Massacre and it's in Ohio and it happened rather recently. Really? Yeah. It happened the same year that the Pulse nightclub uh, massacre happened. Okay. That was a rough year. It really was. And that was the second largest massacre basically that year and it was a whole family oh god and so it's just like a small town and trying to figure out why these people were targeted and kind of like going through like both of them seemed like upstanding families that are involved you know like and so right now i'm like all up in it because you know the nosy body part of me well like 90 percent of me Mm -hmm. i'm like all up in this so it's pretty good I'm still listening to that podcast, Even the Rich. It's very short seasons. It's like four to eight episodes, depending on what they're talking about. But the one that I just finished was on the Versace brand and label and just kind of the whole story. And it talked about his murder a little Mm. bit, too. Did you ever watch that? No. Honestly, it's never really been one of my favorite stories. Me either. I really liked the background of the family though yeah. in this story. You know, it was just a completely different angle because again, it's about rich families, mm-hmm. you know. And so that was just a piece of the story. Well, completely opposite of that. But right now I'm listening to the last episode of season two of In the Dark and it's their interview with Curtis Flowers. And it is so powerful and just so sad and so Like, I want to be happy, and I'm happy, and then I'm so sad. Like, my emotions are all over the place, and that's what you're supposed to feel Mm -hmm. because he's telling his story. Like, the whole second season is summed up in this interview, but it's shit that we never got to hear because she never got to talk to him, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's just thinking about that, like, oh, my gosh. One of the things, and this isn't, like, a giveaway because – most people know this, I just never thought about it, is that he would hear people and like, okay, they're going to get their last meal. And you know, like, you know, what's going on. They'd be taken away to be executed. But then something would happen, they'd come back. And they're like, Oh, my gosh, okay, okay, you know, just to be taken the next day. And you know, oh my God. And it's like that emotional roller coaster. And like, he said, one of the guards were like, well, at least you get your your last meal again, you know, and it's just like, oh my gosh. You know what I thought about too with him? Does he even get any financial compensation because he was technically never found innocent? Like I, don't, they just, I don't think so. No, because they just decided, they just said, okay, we're not going to try to prosecute him again. Right. Shit. That's such an amazing story. So if y'all haven't listened to In the Dark episode well both seasons but season two for sure which is specifically about curtis flowers and the tudor murders it's definitely a good listen yeah well speaking of families the story i'm going to do tonight i found the best article it's called sarah's story this article is actually from 1993 it's from the atlanta magazine it's so good but there was also an episode of forensic files on this story that of course i can't remember what season or what episode so Go me. Okay, picture it. Atlanta. It's hot. It's muggy. And Sarah and Brusco is watching the evening news, and she sees this junior prosecutor working this murder trial. And she recognizes him. And she's like, oh my God, we went to high school together in Buffalo, New York. Like, oh my God. 
what the hell, you know? Sarah grew up, like I said, in Buffalo, New York, from a very upper-middle-class family. Her dad was a physician. She moved to Atlanta, and at this point, she's 31. She's super young, and she's working as the marketing director for this club. She's young, beautiful, and just living her best life, right? Well, when she saw this guy on the news, his name is Frederick Tokars. We're going to call him Fred. When she sees him, she's like, I got to fucking talk to him. Like, what are the odds? We're both in Atlanta. I'm seeing him on TV. I got to see what he's up to. So on impulse, she looks him up and calls him. They go out on a date and they end up getting married the following year, just in one of the judge's chambers. Very relaxed. They just wanted to be married. Well, also, Sarah had been married before, and she was raised Catholic, so it was, you know, divorce was frowned upon, and so she didn't want this elaborate church wedding. She just wanted to, again, have this, like, civil ceremony in the judge's chambers. It was nothing fancy. She wanted what she had growing up. She wanted a man that had a good job, like her father, who was a physician, you know, that could provide the kind of income and the kind of stability that she was raised with. She wanted to stay at home and raise kids. She wanted the life that she had growing up. And Fred was just the man for the job. He was an up-and-coming attorney who could provide all of those things. Fred was kind of interesting. Like I said, he was an up-and-comer in the district attorney's office. He was very handsome. He was a very like Clark Kent type is how he was described. And before he became an attorney, he was actually an accountant and went to night school to earn his law degree. So he was very dedicated and worked super hard. But if you wanted to know how hard he worked, all you had to do was ask him. We all know those types. Yes. He's very like, oh my God, I'm so amazing type. Like, He started teaching classes at the local colleges on white-collar crimes and computer fraud, and he had never even prosecuted any of those cases. But he kind of touted himself as this expert and started teaching at, like, accounting and tax and law enforcement seminars and all these different things when, again, he had never even tried one of those cases. He was known around the district attorney's office as Fast Fred. Mm-hmm. One of the assistant district attorneys, John Turner, said he was called Fast Freddy as a reference to his endless self-promotion and eagerness to work on projects in which he took an interest and his predilection for the city's nightlife. And because when it came to women, he was almost always interested. Again, we know those types. Mm -hmm. But Sarah was in it to win it. She met up with him and he was just so engaging and had these amazing stories about these cases that he had tried. So Sarah and her sister, uh, Chrissy, who she lived with at the time when she was dating Fred, you know, they were able to kind of see this other world that they had never been privy to. You know, again, they grew up upper middle class and just was never exposed to some of the stuff that he saw every day working for the district attorney. Fred wanted to be in politics, and he wanted to be a tax attorney for very wealthy clients. That was his goal. And for him, Sarah was a piece of that puzzle. Sarah was, again, let me say for the 400th time, upper middle class, came from a relatively wealthy family, and was a good match for him in the long run with his want for political career and to elevate his status. And she was attractive. Beautiful. Yes, she was beautiful. When they first got married, Sarah's family starts to notice that Fred's not super attentive to Sarah. He's not home for meals usually. He's always working late. And Sarah would even get annoyed that he was never freaking home. But again, he's an up-and-coming attorney. He has to work late hours, you know? So she tries to be respectful of that because he's working towards his goals, trying to help people. 
but whenever he would get away, she would be so happy to spend some time with him. And not long after they got married, she was pregnant with her first child, Ricky. When she got pregnant, they bought a really nice house in this affluent suburb of Atlanta. And when she gave birth in 1986, she was able to quit her job so that she could stay home, which is exactly what she had always wanted to do. But it wasn't what Fred wanted her to do. Fred was kind of mad that she was like, no, I want to stay home. This is, again, like I said, exactly what I wanted to do. So in order to keep the peace, she started working half days at the office in order to just appease Fred. I mean, I feel like this is something you talk about before marriage. You think? So just to kind of paint the picture of what's going on, it's... 1986-87, remember she does the marketing for a nightclub in Atlanta. Well, at this time, nightclubs were starting to dwindle. There were laws that were being changed, especially as when it came to drinking and driving. And so people were not going out as much because, again, there were harsher penalties for drinking, and, as there should be. Don't freaking drink and drive. But the other thing that was happening is the AIDS epidemic. And so people were more cautious and not really going out. And so she ended up losing her job because nobody was making money. And so that's when she finally, just by default, was able to stay home full-time. Not long after that, Fred left the district attorney's office because he wanted to start his own practice as a criminal defense attorney. Initially, he wanted to focus on criminal defense, but he later had to start taking cases in tax fraud and divorces because he needed to make money fast. When he opened his practice, laws were being passed that made money laundering schemes become very complex. And so he's actually quoted in the Atlanta Business Chronicle in 1990 saying, these money laundering and cash transaction requirement laws became so complex, drug dealers ultimately need to hire attorneys to explain how to circumvent the new system. Well, ironically, and not to Sarah's knowledge, Fred was actually helping people launder money. Meanwhile at home, Fred's under a lot of financial stress because Sarah lost her job, which was then probably $40,000 a year, and now he became the sole breadwinner, and so he took control of all the finances. And he started giving Sarah an allowance. She couldn't have her own checking account, credit cards, nothing. She became so dependent on him. And if she had to buy something for the house, she would have to go ask him for it. And he would give her attitude about it. And she's like, no, like the dishwasher's broken. We have to fix it. You know, like it's not, I'm not just going out and buying clothes. Like some shit's broken. Like I need the money. This is why I can't not make my own money Mm -hmm. because I can't live like that. Well, but I think that if, let's say that you did, which I know you don't want kids and so this wouldn't be your life, but I think that if you had a situation which you were staying at home, because sometimes you just have to. Yeah. Sometimes it's like one person's whole salary is literally just going to daycare. Yeah. So it's actually better for the family for you to stay home. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that by any means, but I think that you wouldn't allow it to be set up that way where you get an allowance and you know nothing about the finances. No, definitely not. And that's not to say that Sarah necessarily did something wrong. I mean, she again, she's doing the best she can. Well, and that's probably how it was growing up for her. Mm -hmm. So that's not wrong to her. I guess that's what I'm always scared of. So I don't want to ever rely on anyone else. So I guess that's why I'm more independent Because I'm like, no, if I rely on someone else, if someone else was like, you know, if I ever found a guy, um, (laughs) I don't want him to be like, oh, no, depend on me. Because then I'd be like, no, because in 10 years when you leave me, I don't want to be out of the job force for 10 years and be like, what do I do? Yeah. Well, you and I are also ones that really wait on the other shoe to drop because it always has our whole lives Mm -hmm. and so we always expect the worst we always prepare for the worst you know well and 
I don't know about you. I think you've been the same way, but I've always been the helper. So I've always been the one with a little extra money so I could help. Well, I I can't help myself if I'm not mm-hmm. there, you know? So I don't know. And growing up, I think we both kind of grew up that way of like wanting to hoard our money then. Mm-hmm. Because again, like you said, something's going to happen, you know, like your bathroom floods and you have to... Replace the flooring in your whole house like mm-hmm. that happened to me Sunday. Exactly. Yes. And so it's just like that stresses me out beyond belief. So if I had no control over that, mm-hmm. that would, oh, gosh. Well, and not only that, Sarah didn't know anything that was going on with the finances. So not only did she have an allowance, she wasn't allowed to know anything. And he even had basically all of his files in the basement And they were all locked up. She could not and was not allowed to go look at them or to even have a key for that matter. Well, Sarah's family lived in Florida. And when she would want to go visit her family, he would be like, no, you can't go. You can't spend the money. And she's like, no, I'm fucking going. And he would be like, okay, but I'm not giving you any money for gas. I'm not giving you any money for a hotel. Figure it out. And then sometimes he would go with her. He would be like, okay, let's go. But he would fly, and she would have to drive with the baby the nine-hour drive. What the hell? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Drop dead, Fred. (laughs) 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 Oh, gosh. That was one of my favorite movies. Me too. It also gave me massive amounts of anxiety. Oh, for sure. For sure. (laughs) The shit he did. The mud on the white carpet, her talking to somebody that wasn't there, Mm -hmm. the cutting of the hair, all the things gave me so much anxiety. Yeah. I mean, it was so freaking bad, but so good. Here's the thing, too. What Fred was doing to her is financial abuse, and it usually escalates. And in this case, it did. It escalated into physical abuse. One day... Sarah and Fred were supposed to go to a party of a longtime friend. And on the day of the party, she called to say, look, I can't come. I'm so sorry that we're not able to attend. I'm not feeling very well. And when they were like, oh, my God, like, are you okay? She was like, whispered to them, like, I can't come. I have bruises on my arms where Fred hit me. And then she was kind of like, oh, fuck. But wait, you're not going to say anything, right? Right? Like, don't even tell Fred that I called you to, you know, just like, just, you promise you'll ignore this? Like, don't say anything, you know? In 1988, Sarah gave birth to their second son, Michael. Four months after she gave birth to Michael, she actually wrote a will just on a yellow legal pad. And she wrote it out had two witnesses sign it, and had it notarized, saying that she revoked all prior wills and left all of her property to her two sons and named her sister, who was an attorney, as the executor and the boy's trustee. Which I think is weird, because she also said that her younger sister would become their guardian, quote, if my husband does not survive me. Like, so she didn't even name him in the will. She just says, like, you know what I mean? It's it was very I don't know. I felt like that was very very interesting. It was almost like she was worried about the kids and whatever was happening in the marriage. Even though Sarah has two young boys at home, Fred is still spending all of his time that he can away from home. But whenever Fred would call to say, "Hey, I'm going to be late. I'm not going to be coming home for dinner." Yada yada yada. She could hear in the background, he's not at work. He's at a bar. He's at a restaurant. He's somewhere where you can hear people talking and music and all the things like, bro, you're not at the office. So by 1989, she's like, he's having a fucking affair. I know he is. So she decides to see a divorce attorney. Then she hired a private detective to follow Fred to try to get some proof that he was having an affair. Well, She got what she wanted, and she got proof that Fred was having an affair. She was pissed. And so she confronted him, and he would have nothing of it. He told her if she tried to leave him, that he would take the kids, and that he had political and judicial contacts to be able to do it. 
Which is so true. That mm-hmm. I mean, like, that's so that fucking movie enough. Like Yeah. I mean, you know how he was like, I'll plant drugs on you or whatever. You know, it's like it's like freaking David and Goliath. I mean, how can she fight against that? Right. So remember they're living in a suburb of Atlanta, but around this time, nineteen eighty eight, when, you know, just had the second child and she's talking to private detectives and all of that, he's becoming more involved in politics but he's involved in the politics in the city of atlanta like helping with campaigns for judges and had even been chosen by the mayor to be a part-time judge for the city he actually ended up being a defense witness for a fulton county sheriff that was on trial for tax evasion and extortion so what we know now is that fred had actually given donations and loans and all of that of over $7,000 to campaigns for sheriff candidates, solicitor general, all these different campaigns, and even was like given money to these candidates in Sarah's name when these candidates were Democrats and Sarah was a Republican. But I think that that was part of money laundering. Mm. And maybe not even as much money laundering as buying people. Because I just listened to an episode of that Scientology Fair Game podcast, and they were talking about how in Clearwater, Florida, the Scientologists will, quote-unquote, donate money to the campaigns of people in Clearwater so that they can make sure that all their people are on the city council and all of that. But it's like Sea Org members donating money, and they'll be donating like $300 here or $400 there. And so it's little amounts that don't look like a lot, but those Sea Org members make maybe $50 a week. Right. So there's no way that they have enough money to donate that amount. So it's really coming from Scientology, mm-hmm. but they're donating these smaller amounts so it doesn't look sketch. Mm-hmm. So at this point, Sarah doesn't know really what his political connections are but she's leaving nothing to chance she wants to protect her sons and herself for the day that she actually leaves him so we talked about already that she hired the private detective then she also broke into his files in the basement so she figured out the combination to the lock and boy did she hit pay dirt she found proof of affairs she found prescription medication Mm. and so she reached back out to that private detective and was like okay what the fuck do i do with this he's like i won't know part of this but what i suggest you do is you make copies of every fucking thing you find and you give them to somebody you trust keep them nowhere where he can find them and take them from you and then hire an attorney and figure out what the fuck all this means. He even told her, take the pills to your family doctor and find out what they are. Well, Sarah tells him, look, if anything happens to me, you need to tell the police everything. And he's like, okay, could you be more dramatic? You know, he just, from all he knows, he's got this upper middle class housewife that just found out that her husband was cheating and, you know... She's freaking out and is like, oh my gosh, if anything happens to me, make sure you tell the police kind of thing. So he kind of blows it off. Well, she found proof that he was laundering money. Now, it was no secret that he carried a lot of cash with him all the time. But she found a lot of cash and wanted to know where the fuck it came from. Well... What we think is that she figures out that while he was representing a lot of these drug dealers as their attorney, he was also helping them launder their money. Because it's easier to break the law when you know the law. That's so fucking true. Mm -hmm. So little did Sarah know that the feds were actually investigating him for drug trafficking and money laundering. And so what happened is... One of 
the drug dealers that he was, I think they like owned a bar together or something. I don't know. It was, it was some money laundering front. His name was Anthony Brown. One of his girlfriends was subpoenaed and because they, the feds thought that she was managing the cocaine distribution. And so she didn't know shit. She really didn't. But she was subpoenaed to the grand jury to testify because they were trying to get information about this brown guy. Well, because Fred was not only his money laundering partner, he was his attorney. He found out all about this girl being subpoenaed and questioned. So keep that in mind. Because while that's happening, Sarah's finding out all of his dirty laundry and He's not about to let her file for divorce because what a divorce mean? That means they got to separate assets. What does that mean? Them digging into his money. Wow. And because of what he knows that happened to Anthony Brown's girlfriend, he knows that she could be subpoenaed because they just think she may or may not know something. Yeah. In March of 1990, Fred actually became a partner in the Parrot Acquisition Corporation, which owned and operated the Parrot, which was like a bar. So for this Parrot Acquisition Corporation, he's listed as just a general counsel, not as a shareholder or in the management agreement. But he's also a board member and the corporation's secretary. But his partners were James Mason and Billy Carter. So those were the ones that were also his clients. Well, Billy Carter actually used to be a special agent with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, but he got fired after he pled guilty to simple battery back in 1988. And then James Mason was a local nightclub owner. He had a lot of friends with, you know, people on the sports teams, politicians, etc., etc., etc. So the feds start looking into the parrot for a couple reasons. Because of their criminal record, they were supposed to not be able to operate a club. They were also trying to figure out, was drug money used to buy and run the club? By 1991, Fred actually resigns from the corporation because there was a civil suit against Mason and the club, and Fred was actually named in it. So he was kind of like, wait a minute, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. Fucking no, I'm out, right? But not fully out, but I'm out on paper. So there was some changing of the hands, you know, of moving people around, who owns what. And they were all Fred's clients, all drug dealers, all in the more seedy side of the club business. Around this time, Sarah decided to just stick it out in the marriage. She had all this proof. She had made copies, given them to her sister, but there was no guarantee that she was going to get full custody of these kids, and she just couldn't risk it. And so she decided to stay. She was not unaware of the types of clients that her husband had, and it scared her because she never knew what if he pissed off a client or sued the wrong person or whatever with you know, these drug dealers and stuff, could they come after him or her and the kids? And so she had told her sister and a neighbor that she wanted to install an alarm system for those nights that she's at home alone with the kids, because that's usually the case. And that apparently the sliding glass door had a broken lock that her husband wouldn't fix. Well, just before Thanksgiving... Curtis Alfonso Rower, a 22-year-old who was known as Cornbread, went into the house with Eddie Lawrence while Sarah and the kids were sleeping. Cornbread had been offered $5,000 to kill Sarah. He knew that Sarah and the boys would be sleeping together in the boys' bedroom, and he also knew that the sliding glass door would be unlocked. He went into the house through that sliding glass door But as soon as he got into the house, their dog began barking. And as soon as the dog started barking, a light came on and the two men fled. After that, 
Sarah was none the wiser. She had no idea. She just knew the dog was barking, and so they went about their business. Sarah and the kids were leaving to go to her parents' house in Florida. She stops at the Tampa airport to pick up her fucking husband, who flies while she drives with two children, fucking toddlers, basically. While they were in Florida, they had gotten some calls from the security company saying that their fire alarm was going off when there was no fire. A few hours after that, another alarm went off when no one was there. And so the decision was made to just turn the alarms off. The Sunday after Thanksgiving, Sarah and the two boys were leaving Florida, headed back to Atlanta. When they left, the kids were singing, I'll be home for Christmas with Sarah. And about 15 minutes after they left, Fred calls and says, hey, is Sarah there? And they're like, no, she's already on the way home. And he's like, okay, like what time they leave? Like what time should they be getting home? And, you know, the father-in-law, Sarah's dad says, oh, they'll be home about 930 or 10. While Sarah and the kids were on their way home, Fred was going to Montgomery, Alabama because he had an appointment with an inmate at the federal prison. Well, Sarah, just like me, has to call her parents anytime she gets anywhere. And so her parents are waiting and waiting and waiting, and she never called to say she was home. So they would call, and the line would be busy. So they would call again. The line would be busy. They called the phone company because, you know, remember, early 90s, people still had landlines, and you could call the operator and be like, hey, why can't I get through? And they found out that the phone was just off the hook. So what happened was, right at about 10 o'clock, Sarah and the kids pull into the garage. Sarah leaves Mike, the youngest, in the back seat because he's asleep, and she and her son Rick and the dog get out of the car. She's fumbling for the keys trying to get in and when she opens the door there's a man standing there holding a sawed off shotgun at her face the dog loses his shit and the guy who ended up being curtis rower remember him from before kicked the dog and forced sarah and little ricky back into the car the gunman curtis gets behind sarah and is literally sitting next to her son that is sleeping in the back seat. He puts the gun to her head and tells her to drive. She's pleading with him, please just don't hurt me. And the kids, when Sarah pulls out of the driveway, he is yelling at her, telling her to drive him to the Atlanta housing projects. And she's like, I don't know where that is. So they get about a half mile away from the house, and he tells her to turn down this street that's a dead end. It's a cul-de-sac. Sarah pulls to the side of the road, and she's like, look, you can take the car. Just don't hurt me and the kids. Like, please don't do anything. But he did. He shot Sarah in the back of the head and fled the car. But he left the kids in there? Yes. So... Little Ricky had always been taught not to sit in a car that's running, reached over his dead mother, turned the car off, and got his little brother out of the back seat. Both of them, bawling, crying, ran through this field to a nearby house for help. He wanted someone to call his grandfather. He knew that his grandfather was a doctor and could help his mom. That is so freaking sad. Mm -hmm. They reach the house. They ask for help, but it's too late for their mother. When the police get there, the kids are covered in blood, and they're saying that their mother had been shot. The police get to the car, and they see this horrible crime scene. Blood is dripping from her hair. I mean, it is a gruesome crime scene. Little Ricky is able to tell the police that it was a black man that shot his mom with a, quote, pirate gun because it was a sawed-off shotgun. Oh, my gosh. He said he tried to shake her awake, but he couldn't wake her up. So freaking sad. So police are like, okay, this has to be some sort of carjacking that's gone wrong, but there was nothing missing. And so... Police are like, 
okay, well, did she walk in? I mean, because they had just gotten home from Florida. So did she come into a robbery? When they get to the house, the house looks like a robbery because it's in disarray. But the door's unlocked. There's no sign of a break-in. And literally nothing's missing. Jewelry, electronics, all of that, nothing is missing. So the police are like, okay, clearly this is not a break-in. This was a fucking hit. But who wanted to hurt Sarah? They brought Fred in for questioning, and he is visibly upset. He asks for an attorney, but, I mean, that kind of perks police's ears up. But on the other hand, I mean, you should ask for a fucking attorney. And he himself is an attorney, so of course he's going to be one to be like, I need counsel. Yeah. Sarah's family puts up a $25,000 reward, and it worked. A woman turned her brother in for the money. She said her brother came home that day wearing bloody shoes. When police brought him in for questioning, they found out that he was actually a hired hitman by Eddie Lawrence. And remember, Eddie Lawrence is Fred's business partner. So police are finding out all of this stuff. They find out that basically Fred lived a life that Sarah knew nothing about. He was constantly surrounded by sex workers, cocaine. He was laundering money into all these offshore accounts. And that Fred was scared that Sarah knew too much about his shady dealings and that she had to go. Well, Eddie Lawrence owed Fred $80,000. And so he said, you kill my wife, I wipe out the loan. Well... Eddie couldn't do it himself, so he hired Curtis Rower for $5,000 to do it. So Eddie Lawrence is facing charges for writing bogus checks. Then informants start telling him that, hey, you know what? He had been looking for a hitman. And so initially, Eddie Lawrence was like, no, 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 no. I didn't do anything. I didn't do shit. You know, whatever. But that's when... Police got the tip about Curtis Rower having the bloody shoes. So police arrest him. And within 12 hours, he had confessed to the murder. And he told them everything. He said that he didn't mean to kill her. That basically he wasn't supposed to. It was supposed to be Eddie. But Eddie fucking disappeared on him. Right after Curtis Rower was arrested, Fred tried to kill himself. He had been in Florida, and he left his kids with Sarah's family, checked himself into a hotel, put a Do Not Disturb sign on his door, and took a bunch of pills and drank a ton of alcohol. He was found unconscious, but he survived. Of course he did. Well, okay, so when he gets back, remember the murder happened, like, basically the weekend after Thanksgiving. By December 31st, Fred Fuckerface is getting on a news conference, begging the media to leave him alone. He says his wife's murder had cost him, quote, my whole lifestyle. Um, excuse me? You mean, she, it cost you your lifestyle, not your fucking wife, not the mother of your children, mm -hmm. your motherfucking lifestyle? Um, it cost her her life. Mm hmm Well, within days, he closes his law firm, starts liquidating all of these assets, put their house on the market, rented a dumpster. If he didn't pack it, he fucking threw it away. He moved to West Palm Beach with his mom and left his kids with their grandparents. Well, they're probably better off. Oh, yeah. He would only visit them twice a month. He would not talk about Sarah's death. But if he did, it was only to say he wasn't involved and he didn't think that Lawrence was either. Long story short, Fred's arrested and convicted of hiring a hitman to kill his wife, and he got sentenced to life in prison. Well, he could be a lawyer for people on the inside. Well. Oh, shit. So, okay. He had a lot of fucking shit in prison. He, according to his attorneys, was, quote, a marked man behind bars, and that... For 27 years, he was basically held in a secret location inside the prison because 
he had been so badly beaten in prison that he had all these neurological problems, had trouble walking and all of that, but he ended up dying in prison in Pennsylvania at the age of 67. Wow. The thing is, is that he had like $1.7 million in life insurance on her. It was way more than he would have ever needed. You know, it was like they had a couple of little policies that were just enough to like, you know, what you would typically have. But then all of a sudden he takes out this huge like million dollar life insurance policy on her. And it's like, dude, you dumb. And it's like she just wanted a family life like she grew up with. She wanted to be financially secure and she wanted to live the dream with two kids and a happy marriage and she got a nightmare. She got the grim fairy tale. She was I mean it was doomed from the beginning because he was nothing that he portrayed himself to be. He was shady from day 1 and she didn't see it. And that's nothing on her, that's he played his role. You know, there's mm-hmm. no way she could have known it. Yeah. That's what's so scary. Mhm. Then he fucking did everything he could to keep her there through financial abuse, physical abuse, intimidation, all the things so that she wouldn't leave. And then when he thought that she knew too much, he had her killed. Yeah. Mm. There's way more to this story that I didn't have, honestly have time to cover with Ricky testifying and, you know, just all kinds of stuff. There's so many shows and all of that on it that you really should watch. Such a fucked up case. It really is. Had his wife murdered in front of his kids. That's crazy. And, like, how innocent of Ricky to be like, okay, I can't, we're not supposed to just, like, sit in an idle car like this. Yeah. Like, I got to turn this off. And, like, reached over his mother to turn the car off. Mm. Well, I hope that your story is a little less heartbreaking. Sure. Uh-oh. All right. I am just going to go straight into my story. Picture it. Early 1970s, and a 20-something-year-old man named Carrie Walton received the unfortunate news of his grandmother's passing. How did he spell his name? K-E-R-R-Y. Okay, okay. You know how many times I spelled it your way? (laughs) A lot. So much so that I had to go find and replace. (laughs) Should have just left it. No. It it annoyed me. (laughs) He made the trip back home to his hometown of Wagga Wagga, New South Wales, for the funeral. While he was there in town, and probably with lots of emotions and memories swirling around in his head, he was determined to face a childhood fear head-on. And maybe he had that gumption you get after being faced with mortality. So he talked his brother John into going with him to the house that always sent shivers down their spines as kids. This house was shrouded in that local lore that most towns have. That one house that seems darker than the rest. People would say that there was an old man who lived there and had been seen dragging a sack of what everyone thought was human heads. That's very specific. Right? Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, a sack, like a a body. No, okay, heads. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Could have been watermelon. (laughs) So it was just that kind of house that the neighborhood kids would cross the street instead of walking in front of that house. I always wonder, do people that their house is that house, do they know? Like, do they know that the kids are terrified of them and their house? Probably. I mean, kids are not subtle. Yeah. I mean, like, I feel like the guy from Home Alone with the shovel knew that the kids in the neighborhood were scared of him. Yeah. But, like... I mean, did Miss Lingle down the street from my grandma's house know that Casey told me that she killed her husband in that house and I was terrified of it? Probably not. (laughs) Well, it wasn't like the local, the town's local legend. Yeah. So, I mean, it was your sister, the Easterling local legend. Anytime I think of that, I think of now and then. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. You think of now and then, I think of Pollyanna, the mean guy that they were, I know you never seen the movie, y'all should see how she's looking at me. But the mean guy that, like, kind of lives in the woods that everybody hated to talk to and thought he was mean and blah, 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 was scared to go up to his house. And, of course, she became friends with him because she's Pollyanna. Why do you like her? Pollyanna? Yeah. I don't know. (laughs) She's, like, opposite of everything I stand for. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, gosh. Okay. 
Well, it was now or never for Carrie. And so he and his brother entered that eerie abandoned house at night on high alert. They only had flashlights and their courage, but that was all they needed. They looked around the dilapidated house, and even though it was creepy, nothing spooky happened. And because there wasn't anything to be frightened about now, Carrie wanted to go have a look in the basement, cellar, whatever you call it. You see, Carrie was a collector of sorts. He collected antiques and sold them, kind of like a flipper before flipping was trendy. So he thought since he hadn't found a ghost in the house, he might find something worth selling instead. So Carrie made it through the cobwebs and safely over the dusty floorboards without a hiccup until his dim light caught something that looked like two eyes peering back at him in the darkness. Carrie and his brother both froze in fear and automatically assumed the worst. They assumed that it was a dead child. With eyes that looked back at him? It was like they could kind of see the shape and it was small and that old man was Again, that house belonged to the old man, and he was supposed to have, like, those were children's heads and all of that. So they were thinking the folklore was right, and now they stumbled upon the burial ground of the victims of the old man. But when Carrie slowly got closer to inspect the child, he saw that it wasn't a dead child, thankfully. It was a doll. A marionette doll. And when Carrie reached out to touch the doll, the clothes basically disintegrated into dust. Oh, shit. And later in an interview, Carrie said that he felt compelled to rescue that doll that night. So he did. He took it away from the thing. And he was like, oh, this looks odd and old. I can make some money off of this. So he's a thief. (laughs) Well, now, Carrie and his brother were on their way back to Brisbane, They were driving at night, a lonely stretch of highway, and it was just them and the doll in their station wagon. But Carrie said because it was at nighttime, each car they passed, the reflection of the oncoming headlights made it seem as if the sack that the doll was in moved. And for a bit, they kind of joked about it, and John, his brother, even crossed his arms over each other where his hands gripped each shoulder, and he proclaimed, let him out, let him out. Like, you know, just joking. Yeah. But over the course of the night drive, Carrie said that there did seem to be a faint voice coming from the sack that sounded like, let me out. Oh, no. Uh Uh-uh. Nope. Not. Nope. Nope. And the name stuck. So this is the story about Letta the doll. The night Carrie returned home... He left the doll in the sack, but he put it in the lounge room, which I'm guessing is like the living room, and he went to bed on the sofa right next to it due to parents staying with him, and he could not stop thinking about Letta and felt a little uncomfortable, and so much so that he got up and had to move the doll downstairs before he could actually go to sleep. Carrie's family were kind of uneasy about the doll just because it looks ugly. I hate to say it like that, but it's just creepy. It's a marionette doll, so the features are exaggerated, and it's just off-putting to a degree. But even the family dog, Randolph the Corgi, was uneasy about Letta. The first time the dog saw the doll, he attacked Letta, and continued to over the years whenever they were in the same vicinity. And that would be something that would always happen no matter what breed of dog. They would always aggressively attack Letta. Over several days, there would be scuff marks on the floor that were seemingly left by Letta's shoes that would be found around the Walton's residence some mornings, meaning that while they slept, Letta roamed. There was one day that the kids had been playing a little with Letta and they wanted him to stay in their room that night. Wait, Lud is a him? It is. It's a him. I'll talk about it later. Okay. Well, that same night, Carrie's kids both woke up crying, visibly shaken from their sleep, and they had both had the same nightmare, that Letta talked to them and moved his head. So, of the four creepy dolls I know of, Mm -hmm. three of them are boys. I mean, I know Chucky is supposed to be Robert, but he counts. (laughs) I was like, wait, who else? There were also various times that household objects would be shifted in their positions without any cause or reason. 
So with this strange behavior going on, and of course his love for antiques, Carrie took Letta to the Australian Museum in Sydney. The experts there dated the doll by the nails under the doll's shoes. Letta was anywhere around 170 to 200 years old. Holy shit. Yeah. No wonder the clothes disintegrated. Right. They believe that it was handcrafted by someone in Eastern Europe and most likely Romania because of the appearance. And something to note is Letta's long hair is human hair. So it's like long brown hair and it's human hair. Oh, that's disgusting. Mm-hmm. And inside the wooden head is something that has the appearance of a brain. When you lift up the top of Letta's head, like his hair, so like if you're scalping him, you can see that quote-unquote brain, and it's described as being the color of wet newspaper. Ew. Uh, ew. Right. The museum said that how the clothes disintegrated and everything, it seemed to them that Letta could have been down there for 60 to 70 years underneath that house. And this made Carrie squirm because he knew that that house had flooded a few times over the years. So if the clothes were that delicate, how come they didn't wash away or dissolve in that water? Also, why was he put under the house and kept there? And why was Carrie drawn to it and compelled to take it? Then what's even more crazy is that the house was demolished soon after this, like a month to be exact, after he took the doll. So it's like the doll beckoned Carrie to rescue it because it knew what was coming. Another thing to note is that it rained any time Leto was placed in the car. And soon Carrie noticed a pattern that this always happened when the doll was taken out in public. On a TV show called State Affair in 1981, which happened to be the first TV appearance by Letta, there was a psychic named Keisha who said that the feeling she got was that someone made this doll because of someone dying. She said there was a lot of tears and a lot of anger went into making this doll. And she also said that she felt the person who made this doll was then persecuted by his community for making the doll. Damn. And that he was called several names, and among them, a witch. She said that the doll carries that hate and sorrow, the anguish and the pity, and even the murderous feelings of the doll's creator. And also, right before the TV appearance, when Letta arrived in the room with Kesha the psychic, a painting immediately fell from the wall and the clock stopped. And when Keisha put Letta on her lap for the shot, just to see, like, what would look better, what angle, whatever, and then she was going to do a reading off of him, she felt him wiggle, and she said it felt like a child squirming to get down. That's absolutely not. Right? And so she told one of the cameramen, and he was like, oh, okay, sure. And she was like, no, 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 seriously. And right then, one of the bulbs blew in the guy's equipment. So it was like, oh, what? Yeah, oh, you don't believe me? Here, go get another bulb, mm-hmm. motherfucker. Well, fast forward to an appearance on The Extraordinary in 1994, and while they were interviewing Carrie, and he was talking about this one point when he tried to sell Letta, another bulb blows in the background, and you can hear it, and you can see them react to the sound. And so it's like anytime it's around cameras, and there's like, it was talking about a negative time and stuff like that, you know, it reacted. Another psychic who Carrie took Letta to said that the doll is home to the spirit of a confused and frightened six-year-old boy who died a long time ago from drowning in a storm. Mm. She also believes that the doll may have been created in this boy's likeness, but it's a marionette doll, so that's why it doesn't look like a little boy, because again, the features are exaggerated and everything. But she also thinks it was made as a transference vessel for the sun's spirit. Remember how it always rains when the doll's taken out in public? Mm-hmm. After learning this, they believe it might be related to the drowning and the storm. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Also, there was a warning given to Carrie that he would never be able to be separated from the doll. But if by chance he did get rid of Letta, only negative things would come from it. 
So a lot of people have witnessed Letta moving, subtle movements, but they have witnessed it. But something that is more creepy than a doll moving to me is some people claim that when they hold him, they can feel him like his body pulse. All I can picture is, what is that stupid soap opera that started coming on after days of our lives where the kid, like the puppet, like would come to life? I don't know. It'll come to me. I only watch Days of Our Lives. There was an incident at a shopping center in Brisbane that Carrie and Keisha were doing with Letta. So they have this show going on, and there's this lady who's not attending the show, but rather just happened to be at the shopping center at the same time. Well, she mentioned that something felt very, very evil, then kind of screamed and quickly passed out right after the scream. Okay, wait, she screamed and passed out? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. And she wasn't the only person who was affected by Letta. Another person vomited at that event, and several others let out screams of horror, too. And there are others who have had an aversion to Letta as well when they were near the doll. They would start to feel sick or be overwhelmed with irrational grief and cry uncontrollably. And there were some people who would also faint like that shopping center lady did. One of the psychics who had met with Carrie and Letta before on numerous occasions called Carrie one day and just said that they couldn't interact with Letta anymore because they were having bouts of bad luck every time after they did, and they felt that the vibes were coming from Letta. Evelyn, Carrie's wife, said that they have friends who come up from Sydney, and they basically give them instructions of putting Letta away in the shed before they'll travel and enter the house. And the shed is where Carrie keeps all of his antiques that he sells. And Evelyn also insists that Letta will alter his facial expressions. She's quoted as saying, Some days I visit him and he looks very sad. Other days he seems happy and smiling. And I know it sounds weird, but he does change his facial expressions. When Carrie and Evelyn were traveling with Letta by car to be on midday with Carrie Ann in 1996... They had some problems where they made it halfway, but then Evelyn got sick, so they had to drive back to Brisbane, and Kellyanne joked that maybe Letta just doesn't like the car. So, why would Carrie keep Letta after all of this? Well, he did try to sell Letta once, and it was when they were buying their first home and they needed some fast cash. So, Carrie decided that it was time to part with Letta. He put an advertisement out about Letta, and a woman eagerly answered. So he went to meet the lady, and when Carrie tried to remove Letta from the car, he couldn't. What? It was like he couldn't lift the doll out at all, and he also felt like he emotionally couldn't part with the doll either. I mean, what in the English Bulldog is going on here? (laughs) Right? Sounds like me trying to get Bo off the couch to take him out in the mornings. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, Letta was something that changed Carrie's life forever, for sure. But not only in bad ways. Since Letta had been in Carrie's life, he has been more prosperous in his antique business than ever. Things that had sat on his shelves for years were being sold like hotcakes. Things became valuable overnight, it seemed. And so much so that it allowed for Carrie and his family to buy a new house in the countryside of Brisbane. He was interviewed on Extra in Australia in 2002, and he said that we come from a housing commission house, broke all the time, no money at all, and he turned up and things started to change. And with that, if you think about it, he tried to sell Letta because he needed money for their first house. Well, Letta didn't want to go, but then he started making money from his antiques business, and he was able to buy their first house. So it's kind of like, no, I don't want to go, so I'm going to make myself useful. Right. When Carrie first found Letta, he was very much afraid of the doll. But now, over the years, over 40 years together, Letta has become part of the family. Carrie and Letta tour together where people can meet and have their photo taken with him, and he is considered one of the world's most haunted dolls. Just not in a negative way. It does seem like a little boy. Like it's 
temperamental and everything, but not harmful. Nothing bad has happened ever besides some people's aversion to the doll. And also, just to note, there is this paranormal investigator slash YouTuber that I watch, and she's called Amy's Crypt, and she met Letta. And she said the experience was fun, and Letta actually sat on her lap, and she kissed his cheek for pictures. The one thing she noted is that, quote, he has these very dark glass eyes that seem to follow you around the room, so no matter where it's held or whose lap it was on, or what was going on with it. It always kind of looked like Letta was watching you. And not just you, but every single person in the room. And as with most famous people, social media is super important, and Letta the doll is a pretty big deal on Facebook. There's usually weekly or daily updates, photos, and everything is written in first person. And there's something that Letta posted that I think I should end with, and it said, When I'm ready, I will let everyone know my proper name, but as of now, I am just Letta Me Out. Holy shit. Right? I I liked it because it's like spooky and creepy, but not dangerous. Yeah. It's not like, oh, you didn't ask for permission to look at me and talk about me? I'm going to crash your fucking computer. Right, right. Mercury in retrograde could fucking never. Right. <laughs> Can I look at the doll now? Yeah, look at it because... Mm-hmm. I want to know your uh, reaction. Oh my god, <laughs> that is nothing like I was expecting. <laughs> Ugly, right? Oh, he got some long hair, <laughs> and that's real hair. I mean, that's some long fucking hair. <laughs> His eyebrows look very angry. Like, he looks like me when I'm trying to think hard. (laughs) So, the doll was with him for 40 years. Well, now more. I mean, I wonder if he has a plan for the doll after he passes. I don't know. I don't think so. Probably just to be underneath the house. Like, I wonder if his kids are going to take it over. Probably not. But, like I said, it's probably going to be underneath the house. That's probably why that other person had it underneath the house. Like, couldn't get rid of it. And it was good luck, so here you go. Which is so different than Robert. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, this doll, I mean, because, like, okay, if it's real, Mm -hmm. this doll clearly has a personality and wants to be with people. So think about if that doll had been in that basement for 70 years. Yep. And think about it if it really is a six-year-old boy Frightened and confused. Because it does sound like a kid, too, when you think about it. Like, oh, my God, he's going to get rid of me. Mm-hmm. I got to do something. I got to, you know, like, make him want me. Yeah. And so he did. And, yay, he likes me. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, and he's got to, like, act right around people so he could still go out. You know, because if he was mean, he'd be behind glass like Robert. He's definitely a people pleaser. He is. I think he's a like, most well-mannered six-year-old I know. He's so ugly to me. Like, not ugly like, ew, but just like, (gasps) like, again, because his features are so exaggerated. Yeah. And so, just when you see it, it's so harsh and so, like, abrasive. But I was looking at the pictures over and over, and some were, like, darker and Mm -hmm. everything, and I was like, ooh. And one video had just, like, a flashlight on his face reenacting him, finding it. I was like, no, this is, like... Uh uh-uh, no, this is a freaking computer game or something that's going to have, like, a jump scare at me. Like, no, I was not having that. When I just looked at it, there was a picture that was, like, reverse exposure. You know what I mean? Mm Mm-hmm. And it was like, whoo, it was creepy. Yeah, oh, I know which one you're talking about. I do not like dolls. Like, if a kid has a doll, I'm not like, oh, my God, I'm scared of dolls. Like, Right. But it's dolls like that that I'm like, what the what? Like, who created that? You know? I mean, like, I know the story. I yeah. just listened to it. But I'm saying, like, in general, sometimes I'm like, who the yeah. fuck would make a doll like that? It's any dolls. Like, yeah, I'm not scared of them. But come night, I don't want them looking at me. Like, I had a doll that didn't even have eyes. Like, she was always asleep. She was like a newborn, mm-hmm. you know? Love that fucking thing. All the time. Like, she had to go everywhere with me, buckled in, all the things. But at night, that motherfucker slept in the, she sat up in the closet with the door closed. (laughs) 
because I had her on another thing and I was like, no, I feel like she's looking at me. Her eyes are closed. Like she didn't have eyes. They were just carved. And I was still freaked out. I like, I don't really remember having dolls. Like I know I had this one doll that smelled like a baby, you know, Mm -hmm. and her eyes like would blink, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I remember her, but really, I don't really remember having dolls. That's the only, like, baby doll I had besides, like, a Cabbage Patch doll. Yeah, I did have a Cabbage Patch doll. I only had one of those. I had one, and Casey had one. Mine was blonde hair. Casey's was brown hair, just like us. Mm -hmm. And we each had a nightgown, and our Cabbage Patch doll had a nightgown that matched us. Oh, that's funny. Mm -hmm. Mine had one outfit that she wore for, um, like, 20 years. Yes, I say 20 because, uh, uh, no, um, 17 years. I mean, depending on when I got her. Because we threw her away right before we moved out to the new house my senior year. Damn. She was in, because my mom was a hoarder, but she kept her in like a drawer. Mm-hmm. was like, this was your first Cabbage Patch doll. That was my only one. And it had crayons all over, like crayon marks. Yeah. Because apparently I was like, ooh, she wants a tattoo. Your mom also just had like this secret stash of toys that nobody... knew where it was or ever saw it for that matter let a kid come fucking over and she'd be like hold on and go to the back and come back with a fucking toy that's like this huge duck and you're like where the fuck did you get that i know she did she she really did and like when she died we didn't find the stash (laughs) i guess she gave them all away i guess so or she was magic i don't know she pulled them out of her ass i like this this was such a different haunted object you know yeah if you found the doll, would you have kept it? Hell no. You left it right where you found it, huh? Uh-huh. Because that doll, I'm telling you, when when they only had his eyes lit up with a fucking flashlight, no, thank you. I would have been like, oh my God, that might be a dead person. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and then Carrie would have been like, Donna, we have to see if it's an actual dead person. I'm like, you go first. I'm like, I'm already fucking going first. <laughs> it's my flashlight. That's true. Stop pulling on my shirt. No, actually, <laughs> it would have been my flashlight, and I would have had it, and she was like, no, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> she's not wrong mm-hmm. in this instant. The flashlight, she's wrong. <laughs> Y'all let us know if you would keep the doll. I mean, I would keep it if it was making me money, but it would have never got to that point, because I would have been like, boy, bye. Gotta go. Well, we hope that you are enjoying October just as much as we are. And remember, creep it real and and don't don't get scared. scared.